Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. I'm your host, Abraham Cherian, the founder of Data Dive, an international youth-driven organization focused on developing data literacy among the next generation. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Nina Vassen on the podcast. Dr. Vassen got her AB in government from Harvard College before getting her medical degree at Harvard Medical School. She then went on to complete her residency and obtain her MBA at Stanford. Dr. Vassen founded Stanford Brainstorm Lab, which was the first academic lab to combine disciplines of technology, medicine, and entrepreneurship to empower innovative mental health care solutions. She serves as the Chief Medical Officer of Real, a mental health care startup that recently raised $37 million in its Series B round. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Vossen. I'm so excited to have you on today. Ibrahim, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, I love all things data and have been loving your past episodes and look forward to this one, too. So could you tell us a little bit more about your background, maybe your experiences growing up and how you got interested in psychiatry? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I will start by crediting my brother, my older brother, Neil. And Neil, as as my older brother, you know, I always followed him and always looked up to him as a role model in many ways. And when it comes to professional stuff, I remember one of the things Neil said from a pretty young age to me, actually, was, you know, when thinking about your career, think about what is the biggest problem out there that you really care about and go all in into solving that problem. And so for me, as I went throughout college and medical school and everything, I was kind of trying to figure out what, like, what is that one problem I really care about? And, you know, as someone who has had been interested, I would say in, in a lot of different areas, you know, I, I, I studied government in undergrad and then, you know, went to medical school. So it's already there had some different kind of interests, but even to rewind a little bit, you know, you know, in high school was so fortunate. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia and really was able to touch upon many, many different academic disciplines that I found fascinating. And so, you know, I um, had a hard time, though, choosing just one thing. There were so many social problems that I thought at that time were really, really interesting and, and deeply compelling, still do think that. And so, you know, in moving along, I kind of was in this world where it's like, women's rights is phenomenally interesting and addressing alleviating poverty is interesting. And, you know, there are just many, many things that I could kind of in theory see myself really committing to. Medical school did not make that any easier because in our third year of medical school, we really, you know, we kind of go from one field to another. We spend about a month or two in all the different specialties. So you spend, you know, some, we started off in surgery and I love surgery. I loved, you know, being able to do something with my hands and feeling like I was creating something literally you were in, in surgery, um, you know, and then going to OBGYN and, and addressing women's health issues and seeing all the, the really, really interesting social issues there, as well as fascinating medical issues and the intersection there. Um, and I remember in med school, after each uh, section, I would feel like, wow, this is like a really, really interesting, fascinating field. But then again, I, again, and then kind of it went on and went on and went on. So both when it came to like solving social problems, as well as mm -hmm looking to see, you know, what these disciplines are all about. Um, the world is your oyster, right? 
Now, what changed there? Um, now, when I was in medical school, I was actually, it was my first like, real you know, experience with mental health. I grew up in an immigrant household. My parents are from Southern India and we never really talked about mental health growing up. And I, you know, even, even school, even among friends and stuff, it was never something that was like really well on my radar. And in med school, I myself actually struggled with depression. It actually took a few years for me to get diagnosed with depression. I, I had been struggling for a while. And, you know, in that whole process, it taught me an immense amount about mental health. I never, I never knew anything about mental health, mental health conditions, um, and really just even the, the really, I think, fascinating um, social dynamic of, of struggling with mental health. It was that actual personal experience of getting diagnosed, very thankfully finding, you know, medication helped me get better, but also like navigating the system was phenomenally difficult. I actually, you know, because I was in med school, was advised by medical school, like kind of the, the advisors there that not, not, not to actually go to therapy because it would take time out of my medical school um, world, you know, you can't be on surgery rotations and everything and like take two hours out of the day to go see a therapist. Um, this was also 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I should, I should explain. Um, but, you know, and, and that was actually really, that was really upsetting. And even now I realize it's really upsetting to not be given the ability to, to go get treatment. And all of this made me realize like, wow, this is a really, really compelling field. I had that personal experience of having gone through it myself. Um, but I also had like, you know, this, this, this understanding of as horrible as my experience was, and, and it was, it was really, really painful, you know, incredibly difficult to get through. I also realized that I am probably in like, you know, the 98th percentile of having a good outcome here, right? Because one, I, you know, I was diagnosed, I had treatment, this, I took Wellbutrin, this antidepressant medication, I got better with it. I had all these resources around me to uh, help me understand what was going on with me. I had a support, like, supportive family and friends and I had health insurance, like that alone is a really big thing, right? So, you know, when we think globally, my experience, while definitely painful and str a struggle for me and my own family was actually quite good. And so then it was just sort of realizing like, wow, as a social issue, mental health is really, really fascinating. And as someone with a, you know, with this kind of interdisciplinary background, mental health became that much more fascinating because it was like, wait, recognizing that in order for problems in mental health to exist, you know, why someone becomes depressed and then why someone has a hard time seeking depression treatment and how do they get better? The, there's so many facets to what makes that happen. Part of that is the science and the clinical side of it, which is what we study in medicine. But there are tremendous other aspects. There, there are social policies. There are, there are economic issues at play. There are cultural issues, anthropological issues. So many things like that that are really, really fascinating. And so I felt like, you know, this is the one time where I'm seeing something and find this one issue so compelling that I can actually close the door on all these other things that are also very interesting. I also do deeply care about but that I could spend, you know, 50 years working on just this one area and having a really rich, phenomenal, you know, career. So that is kind of how I got into psychiatry. The, I guess the other, the final part of that I would say is, you know, that, well, that rather, that's how I felt compelled by mental health as a social issue and decided, as my brother said, you know, find that problem that you think is the biggest problem. One of the things I, I say about this is that, um, you know, when it comes to mental health, that mental health is the biggest thief of human potential today. 
And I think if we look historically, you know, there have been things like things like ed, like education equality in education or poverty. And today, I really think that is women. Uh, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> that, that is mental health. And so, want to solve that problem. The final element I'd say of that is that um, when it came to psychiatry, that is treating patients, I felt like the experience of treating patients who struggle with mental health really was a sacred experience. The way in which people come to us when they're struggling so deeply vulnerable, having oftentimes experienced things that are, you know, that is very isolating, oftentimes sharing things that they've never shared with anyone else. It's a really, really uh, deep and meaningful. And I, you know, I, I use the word sacred very, like, you know, realizing how deeply powerful that word is and, and really felt like, wow, this is something where I myself can uniquely show up to this job and make an impact, you know, for my patients. So that's, that is how all of that came together into taking on mental health and psychiatry specifically. Yeah. So you spent quite a bit of time in college, right? Obviously going to med school and now most recently getting your MBA. So what do you think are some of the best skills that you have now that were sort of fostered or developed in, in college? You know, like if I think back to college, I honestly, what I remember most is the amazing friends I made and the wonderful, you know, social experiences I had. And so I think if I were to answer that now, it would be like picking wonderful people and shout out to all of them right now. I don't, I wish I had something other to say where I actually think I do have something to share is in medical school. In, in medical school, you know, I said, I, I struggled with depression. I, I actually like failed an exam or I, I, I had issues, you know, I, I, was kind of my first experience with like what is a professional failure like and i actually think that in a lot of ways the best skill i picked up was learning to not only just like embrace but in some ways even like celebrate failure i think you know in, in a hyper competitive environment like like you know harvard medical school any medical school that there is a kind of pressure at times to to hide when one fails to hide one's vulnerabilities and having that kind of professional failure actually led to me wanting to be really open such that first I actually just even like was really open to ask questions and admit that I didn't know something. And I think that that be, being able to come to terms of failure, talk about it really openly, say, I don't know, say I was wrong, all of that, um, and have that level of openness at that stage of my training and career um, was really one of the best skills. And I, and even now today, I try to be very, you know, very, very open and upfront about and anything related to failure. And I think it's an important part of our discussion. It's, it's an important part of our world to, to, you know, to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to pivot here and talk about one of your social entrepreneurship efforts, which was the Stanford Brainstorm Lab. So what was sort of the driving force behind uh, deciding to start this and, you know, co-founding it with a few other doctors? Yeah. So I guess there are a few things there. You know, one is that when I think about how I solve problems or what I'm, what I'm looking for in terms of how I make a lot of professional decisions, maybe personal decisions as well, the value that it really always comes down to is impact. How can I make a impact? How can I make a deep impact? How can I make an impact on a lot of people? And so that at the end of the day, that was sort of like the very, very big thing to lead to me creating Brainstorm. On a uh, more specific level, you know, what was going on at the time, this was about, this was uh, about five, five, six years ago. You know, I started to enter this world of digital mental health about a decade ago. And at that time, really, there were just a small handful of tiny startups that were addressing some aspect of, of mental health. Um, usually like putting CBT online was a lot of people were doing back, back in the day. And, you know, ultimately what I saw having this advantage point of kind of 
coming out to Silicon Valley and someone who a lot of early kind of early founders were were talking to, and in this case, because of my my clinical expertise, that there was a lot of passion, a lot of interest in in kind of addressing these problems. But there were a few big issues. Um, one, I think, was uh, that ultimately a lot of the companies at that time were not really making an impact on patient outcomes. Like there were all these great ideas, but people weren't really getting better. And that's something we'll talk about later on, I think, because that's actually a big part of why I think data is the magical part of the solution for a lot of things. And I'm very excited about the role of data in all this work. But, you know, so one was seeing like, okay, are, are, like, is this even making an impact period? And, and also that uh, because, you know, because I mentioned this kind of interdisciplinary world that exists in mental health, as a result of that, when we look to see who was creating a lot of these solutions, you have clinicians, engineers, entrepreneurs, investors, that there was no shared language among folks. And it was really, you know, a lot of people working in silos. And so what that showed me was a few things. One is that we need a community. We need to be able to bring people together. We need to also, what I saw was do that in a kind of neutral third party sort of way, where a lot of the voices that were out there talking about the field were, were, were people who had already, who had their companies, you know, or were investing in companies. And that's a tremendous role to play. I now play that role today through real and which we'll talk about in a little bit. But at the end of the day, everyone's a little bit biased, right? In, in the sense of like a lot of people, you know, you want to talk about your company or, and, and what I saw was that, wait, like this is such a new emerging field. We need a, we need a kind of umbrella-like vantage point to see how do we improve the entire field as a whole, not just one company, not just one way of solving problems such as mobile apps or AR or VR or AI, you know, but like specifically the whole field. And so that's really what I wanted to be able to do with Brainstorm is have that really kind of big picture perspective and be able to, I, I think the other element of that was I felt like partnership and collaboration was tremendously important. So the vehicle of having an academic lab, what I hypothesize and what has absolutely been true is that really almost any type of organization company like is eager to work with us. And I think that again, in the mental health historically has been isolated and um, everything from the fields of medicine when you're starting a new field, it, it, it can be a tough experience. And so the value of collaboration and partnership, I think just cannot talk more, like, you know, can't, can't, could go on and on about that for, for hours. And so creating something that would facilitate that um, was really important to me. Like you said, there weren't that many mental health care companies or academic labs that were focused on the intersection of mental health care and technology. So was there something that inspired you to think like, hey, maybe technology can create meaningful change in this space? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that the labs that were out there, if it was like mental health times tech, it was, for example, you know, like a virtual, like one of our, my colleagues, actually, Kim Bullock at Stanford has a phenomenal virtual reality in, in mental health lab and clinic. Awesome, awesome work that she's doing. And other folks might be focusing on a specific population or a specific disease or a specific modality. Again, what we wanted to do was kind of be that, like, take a step back and think about what, like, what does, or rather actually take a step back with the lens of innovation entrepreneurship, right? So if we have technology, if we have mental health, how do we leverage innovation entrepreneurship as a way to solve these problems? And so, and, and in particular, you know, like working with startups, working, and then as that grew, working with large tech companies, promoting entrepreneurship, all of that is kind of what uh, what that ended up, ended up looking like. 
so I think you, yeah. So your question of like, you know, how did, what, how to become like clear that technology could be an answer. That was the time, again, this was about 10 years ago when it was sort of the first wave of direct to consumer health tech really started. And I was seeing companies that were like Omada Health, actually my, my med school classmate started Omada Health and saw, you know, the awesome work that he was doing in that space and seeing how, seeing how in other diseases like diabetes or or heart disease, how companies were leveraging technology. And, you know, in med school and in, in clinical medicine, we treat patients one patient at a time and seeing that, oh, wow, through technology, you're able to scale, right? You're able to treat, treat reach, address, treat thousands, millions, and finding that incredibly compelling. What also happened though, was I saw this is being done in other areas of medicine and not in mental health. So that's really what a lot of my efforts were about is let's take what's happening. What, when I moved to Silicon Valley too. So that was a big thing, right? Like, you know, you saw all these other companies, you saw like, you know, Uber and Lyft and, and, and everyone else, Airbnb, and like how all those companies were transforming their fields, thinking that, okay, how does, how does technology transform my field of mental health? And then secondly, as I said, it was happening in other areas of medicine and how do we bring it to mental health? So as part of your work for uh, Stanford Brainstorm Lab, I think I read this in an article about how you and like the other people who work there developed like this eight part framework of how mental health innovation should be like conducted or done. So could you talk a little bit about the process behind designing that framework? Abraham, you are a phenomenal student. When, whenever you need a rec letter, let me know because you have done your homework very, very well. And that's absolutely correct. Um, so yes, you're, you're, you're right. And so we created this eight-part framework, the Stanford Brainstorm Framework for Mental Health, for Designing and Mental Health. I think that's the name. Pretty sure that's the name. And how did that all start? Well, I'll rewind a little bit. When I was in med school or when I was in college, actually, I, over college and med school, I wrote a book called Do Good Well. And it's a book on leadership and social innovation. My background growing up in, in high school was uh, kind of was always the nonprofit sector. And I, and I had done work with the American Cancer Society specifically. That experience led to me working with my one someone who's become my one of my best friends, Jennifer Pribolo. And we wrote that we wrote this book, Do Good Well. And the Similar, in somewhat similar ways to actually starting the lab, the impetus was seeing that there were so many nonprofit organizations that had really, really good intentions, but not always having great results. And what this made us realize was, you know, having a framework, having a process, in, in that case, actually we called it a method, that could bring together best practices could be really, really helpful for people as they were starting, starting in this case, starting nonprofits 15 years ago. This was for students and young adults who were very eager to you know, see social problems they care about and do something about it. So in Do Good Well, we have, there are kind of three main things that we talk about in Do Good Well. And we, we kind of break down Do Good Well. So we have this 12 part uh, method for social innovation and we break it down into three steps. Step one is do what works. And that's really around effectiveness, being effective in what you're doing. Step two is work together, so collaboration. And step three is make it last. So really focused on sustainability. Wrote that about Do Good Well, you know, got it out there and everything. And then and the book came out actually right when I was graduating med school. And then what was really fascinating to me when I went to residency and started to look at psychiatry and mental health and mental health startups was those same concepts that had been, you know, in this case, something that we wrote for nonprofits and, and social, social enterprises were completely relevant to, you know, for-profit mental health, but both mental health from a clinical perspective, as well as mental health in this kind of for-profit startup innovation environment. Same problems were coming up. Do what works. Is this actually effective? Are you measuring it? 
work together? If you're collaborative, like, are you collaborative with whom? How does this like transfer? Make it last. What are the sustainable impacts for the work you're having? And again, I said that from the very beginning that this all started because a lot of things out there have not seen patient outcomes get better. So that is, it was a kind of do good well that actually kind of continued and inspired this and then helped me realize that just as do good well was so helpful in the nonprofit space, what if we could create something like that for the work that we're doing now in mental health innovation? And so we created this eight-part framework as a mix of practical experience, working with startups, working with big tech companies, and, and actually actually explain what we do. The, one of the, we do uh, a mix of research, teaching, and the biggest thing we do actually is product design in the lab. And so taking expertise as clinicians, taking kind of bringing academia, kind of emerging academia and industry, you know, taking what we do in academia, taking it out of academia into industry and being like these ambassadors of mental health to work with folks who are creating products and using our expertise in patient care, in public health, and bringing that to product design. And so the framework has been so critical to that. So again, it was created from this practical experience, as well as then research of doing a very, very big market analysis and analyzing many, many perspectives of what tons of startups and companies out there were doing, looking to see who's successful and why, and, if, and also who's failed and why. And all of that helped to determine what are those, in this case, eight criteria or eight dimensions that we ultimately felt like were really the most important to consider when it comes to designing in mental health. Yeah. So one component of this eight-part framework that you developed was uh, where you conducted market-wide analysis on the field of mental health technology. And so as part of this, you collected a lot of data and analyzed it from various perspectives, including ethics, clinical symptoms, and even business models. Could you share how the research that you uh, did over there uh, served as a foundation for innovation and addressing present issues in technology applications in mental health? Absolutely. And, and that, you know, just exactly as you said, what we did was combine this very practical experience of working with companies and seeing directly what worked and merging that with a, you know, kind of large scale a academic study where we had, you know, we could quantify many things. And what that boiled down to then was these eight criteria. So let me share the eight criteria. Safe. And, and again, I should say that this is if you're designing something in mental health, these are the eight things that we think are really the most important to consider. And we also want you to think really from the very beginning of designing something all the way through you know, execution and improvement and the many, many stages of, of improvement, that these are always the things you have in mind. Safe, effective, measurable, collaborative, empathically designed, accessible, sustainable and scalable. And I'll say just like maybe one sentence on each one. Let's start with safety. Safety is first and foremost, actually. And there's a reason why we always say it first, which is that, especially when it comes to mental health and when we think about the history and context of how folks with mental health were you know, treated and everything, at the end of the day, people have to be safe. And so anything that's being designed, there needs to be things in place to make sure that we're not further harming people. You know, in medicine, we take this oath to do no harm. And so it's really important that nothing we're putting out there is ever harming people. And that moreover, that there are really mechanisms in place to keep people safe. Next is effective. So that's really, again, that's really coming to is what you're doing, is what you're putting out there actually working? And what I mean by working is, is it improving health and health outcomes? Unfortunately, for a lot of, for a lot of things, there's this intuition like, oh, this should help. 
But I think what ends up happening is that for a lot, a lot of folks are not doing the research to study, does my product help my population? And that's something that's been tremendously important to Is It Real is like, you know, making sure that we're doing the research, that we have the data, that we're really making sure that we are effective. And that's one of the, the highest values that we have. When it comes to effective, there's also, I think, a big tension between effectiveness and engagement. A lot of folks out there kind of kind of think engagement is, is the most important thing. Engagement is tremendously important, but I would say, you know, if it's not effective, you don't want to engage someone in something that's not going to work. I actually think that is harmful and goes against our medical oath of do no harm. Um, next, we have measurable. So this is, I think, where, where you come in very nicely, sir. So measurable, right? Are we actually measuring, not just is it effective, but are we measuring the progress and impact and outcomes that we have? And what are the metrics that are being used? Are those the right metrics? Are they easy to collect metrics? You know, and, and I think we'll go to deep dive on that, but measurable is, is, a, is a big part of that. Next, we have collaborative, and that's kind of looking at a lot of solutions that are created out there, especially as startups are done in a way that it's like, this is one company in isolation. And the problem there is that how then does it work with everyone else? How does it work with the healthcare system? How does it work with other apps or tools out there? And, and ultimately, you know, you want to create something that can be used and loved by not just, you know, your user, but like a lot of other folks or other stakeholders that make up that person's life and that make up that person's mental health journey. And so really making sure that others can get involved in some way. Empathic design is our, our, our lab's take on design thinking and, you know, design research and everything. And as psychiatrists, you know, it, that literally it's the, it goes in the word empathic, right? That you're starting from a place of empathy, that you're putting your user first and that decisions are made not with like what makes sense you know, for a, for our schedule as clinicians or what, you know, what is best for the hospital, but like truly what is best for our patients, that their needs, their values are, are coming first and foremost. Accessible. Now, I think what's really interesting with accessible, one is that I'm so glad that over the last year or so, we're finally having a wonderful conversation around things like health equity and that health equity is not just like, you know, something to check off in a checklist, but something that we need to really, really take a deep dive into. And that's, again, something that's been tremendous for working at Real, where we have really, you know, people who are champions and, and like wonderful experts in health equity. And it, it's not just something that we kind of pay lip service to, but really put as a first and foremost part of our mission. And so when I say accessible, you know, it's recognizing I said user first, right? But also like there are a lot of types of users. There's not just one user. And so are we thinking about the different types of users and making sure that we are accessible to who, who you know, everyone out there. Next, we have sustainable that kind of explains itself and as does scalable, that ultimately, you know, it's able to scale broadly. And that just goes to the final thing I'll say is mental health. There are 2 billion people around the world who struggle with brain and behavioral health disorders. In the United States, over the course of our lifetime, 50% of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. These are really, really big problems to have with a lot of people struggling. Solutions have to be scalable. So I think you brought up something interesting there about design, empathetic design. So I was actually listening to this interview with Ariella Safira, who is the founder of Real. Real. Love her. <laughs> yeah, and, and and she was talking about how influential David Kelly, who's uh, from IDEO, was in terms of her thinking about design. So was there anyone who mentored you or paved the way for you and has shaped your thinking process about design? 
Ideal similarly was was very very powerful. Uh, very fortunately, one of Dennis Kelly's uh, partners, uh, sorry, one of one of David Kelly's partners, Dennis Boyle, uh, is someone who had an early, early partner and the head of health at IDEO, and someone who's on our board at Brainstorm. Just a you know phenomenal human being, in, in addition to a brilliant man. And so he's been someone who I think very similarly has helped shape that. And but 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 also I, I would say that you know I think it's actually many like many peers looking at many things out there and seeing it in, in some ways over a specific person i think that for myself and for my team at, at stanford brainstorm it's actually been our patients it's been like looking at our patients and seeing our patients experiences and recognizing that we have to build to our patients first and foremost and i think as 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 clinicians and that's like the way we live our lives making sure that that gets transferred into the values of a product design of a company being being put out there. Yeah, so to kind of uh, continue on that design theme, uh, when you were at Stanford Brainstorm Lab, you worked directly with engineers at various social media companies to design better algorithms for them. So in, I think, six months or so, there was an 88% decrease in self-harm content. How do you see algorithm design evolving such that social media platforms can produce a more positive feed for all users, which I think is the goal for majority of the companies, right? They want to make sure that the users are having a positive experience. Yeah. So I, you're referring to our work with Pinterest. So we worked with Pinterest and created a suite of tools that's called Compassionate Search. And basically, you know, now if you go to Pinterest and you type in something like depression or anxiety, you could get this pop-up of a whole suite of tools that we created with them um, using, you know, all the best evidence to make this experience of Pinterest of struggling with mental health and searching for something related to mental health on Pinterest, something that is safe and compassionate and based in evidence and all, all those values that we talked about, right? So the th there are three big things that were a part of the work we did with Pinterest. One was putting what we call uh, microtherapeutics out there. So again, if you search for something like depression, what you end up getting is a whole host of activities that you can do on the platform that really take what we would do with our patients one-on-one -on -one kind of like the foundations of elements of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, but actually then transformed it into something that you can do on the platform in just a few minutes. So really actually having like direct access to therapeutic kind of things. The next we did was what we call micro interventions. So making changes to the UI UX that would allow for a safer and better experience. So just to give a couple examples of that, um, we take something like autofill. You know, autofill is great when you're looking for Navy couches, but if you're looking for something harmful, like self-harm content, we don't want to encourage that. We don't want to, you know, autofill that for you. And so what we did in that case was identify kind of all the different trigger words that we thought were dangerous, but also put them in context. Like, when is this word dangerous? For whom is it dangerous? And um, helping them identify that when these words start to come up, that we're not going to autofill. Or for example, we're not going to have push emails to say, hey, you know, we saw you checked out, blah, blah, blah. Here are 10 more pictures like, like, you know, Navy couches. If it's Navy couches, that's fine. If it's something related to self-harm, we don't want to further that content. So those are some of the changes that we made to the user interface. The third big thing was changing the algorithms. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, so what we did was we worked directly with the engineers to help them understand the context of self-harm. So when is something harmful? For whom is it harmful? culturally something that's harmful in one country might not be harmful in another country when it's harmful for a kid it might not be harmful for an adult when you add a certain word to it it might not be harmful 
And just to use an example, like when we look at search terms and the very interesting data around search terms, one of the actually most dangerous words from a search term perspective is Tylenol. Because you can imagine a lot of people when they're looking for Tylenol, um, they're not looking, you know, how do I relieve my aches or something, but it's around overdosing. And so, you know, it's really understanding the nuances of when do certain terms get used. So it really became a lot of education and working with them then to um, help understand what's out there and how then to leverage that deep understanding of mental health and the context of mental health to change the algorithms. That's what they were able to do. The thing I'll say about that to kind of wrap up is that how we were able to do that was actually it boils down to values. What are the values that this company has and how are they going to enact those values in their own decisions, in how they design their algorithms and in what they prioritize. And in this case, you know, Ben Silberman, who, who was and is the CEO of Pinterest, and also Evan Sharp, who was the chief product officer of Pinterest at that time, had, I, I will say, like the best values where, you know, in working with us, they were all, they always said from the beginning, we want to put their user first. This is not about, you know, making more money. This is not about people clicking on ads. There is all of this is only for how do we help people get better. And, you know, as clinicians, that's not magic to our ears, but also not all like tech companies are like that, right? they have the right values. And so that allowed us to create something that was completely in line with what I as a clinician would want anyone to be able to use. And do you think there was anything you guys did in particular to have success so early? Because an 88% decrease is a pretty significant change, right? I'm going to give full credit to the engineers on that one. <laughs> that is that is all that. I mean, I, I think I think probably what that showed is that, you know, I think it shows how high yield some of this stuff is which is that with a few key changes, they were able to reduce the amount of self-harm content very significantly in a very short amount of time. And what that then means is that, look, there are huge and tremendous opportunities on social media platforms to make them more safe from a mental health perspective. And so, you know, we did this with Pinterest. I really hope that, and so, you know, certainly other companies have followed suit. And, and I hope that that only continues because there's so much opportunity out there to improve mental health, not only to keep people safe, but, you know, one of the, uh, another, another frameworky thing we have, I suppose, a brainstorm is the sense of first do no harm, like we talked about a few minutes ago, but also then do well, do good, right? But like, like do good well, but, you know, how do you leverage technology platforms to do good and put out good things related to mental health? on there and again it's all kind of all what we're trying to do at real but you know but how do social media companies do that as well that wraps up part one of the data dive podcast with dr nina vossen stay tuned for part two where dr vossen and i discuss the real pulse program where she and her team are turning data into actionable insights how data science can address the stigma associated with mental health care and how data science and AI can continue to play a key role in transforming mental health care for the future.